Okay, we're continuing on, book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 3. We didn't quite get through all of chapter 3 last week, so we're going to pick up from where we left off. We're going to do a quick review, and then we'll pick up from there. Let me get it all situated here. So I'm going to move fairly quickly uh, through today. This is one of, I, I think I mentioned it last week, this is one of the biggest hinge points in Scripture. You could spend a year easy studying just this chapter and not run out of things to learn from it. And so there's so much here. We're obviously not going to be able to look that in depth. We're trying to take a high-altitude flyover of Genesis. So we're going to move quickly through chapter 3. What I want to do is just start with a little bit of a review. Uh, our big overarching idea in this book is that God's grace is the cure for our corruption. We're going to see over and over, God be gracious, man rebel, man walk away from God, man disobey, man sin, God come back and try and reestablish relationship and work with Man, and then the cycle just continues to repeat itself over and over. And we see God's grace, the cure for our corruption. In Genesis 1, we saw uh, creation. We talked about creation, uh, the six days. And just one of the things we could see in that passage was that God is sovereign. He's set apart from all of his creation. So you have God and everything else. Completely separate. Nothing is on the same plane. No one is on the same plane as God. He is completely outside, separated from his creation in the sense that there is none of his creation is uh, on plane with him. He is above it all. We also looked at the word uh, we saw in Genesis one Eliohim is kind of the name for God that was used over and over, and that is a name that signifies and demonstrates his power. So in chapter one, his power was on full display. He just says something and creates a world, says something and creates uh, stars, says something and creates plants. So we see God's power on display. And then we saw his grace in the creation of man and that he created man in his own image. And he created, it says, you know, he kept saying, it is good. It is good. And we saw God's creation of man. Then in Genesis 2, we had the garden. And we saw God's love and care over and over in that passage where it talks about God providing for creation, providing for man, providing for even provided man with a, a, a woman, a companion. And we saw God's care, God's hand, God's love. In that, and we see a name change. We see Yahweh is the name given to God in chapter two, and that's the more the relational side. So we see God's imminence, He's so high and mighty and above. And then in chapter two, we begin to see His transcendence, or we saw or reverse that His transcendence, He's so high above and mighty. And then in chapter two, we see His imminence that He is. A relational God that cares about us and he was involved directly with us. And we see that his imminence in Jesus Christ coming to earth as a man, as a man. I don't know why I'm flipping this word, but his imminence 
that he wants to have a relationship with us. So it's really cool to see how high and mighty and exalted and majestic God is, but yet he's close to us and desires a intimate, close, personal relationship with us. And then in the first three or first six verses of chapter three, we saw the serpent's deception and the man and the woman's disobedience. Eve is not called Eve yet. We'll get to that at the end of the chapter. So uh, the man and the woman's disobedience. And then we see God's grace was revealed that he gave them freedom to choose. And many people have had this question over the past few weeks. It's an age old question, but like, why did God give man a choice? If he knew man was going to mess it up and if he knows everything, because he is a God who wants a loving relationship and you can't have a loving relationship if you try and force somebody to love you. That's not loving. And so he gives man freedom and where you see what happens today based on that. So we're going to just continue talking about deception, disobedience, and the consequences. Last week, we focused in on the deception part. Uh, we'll quickly go over that, but we're going to talk about deception, disobedience, and the consequences today. Disobedience starts with deception. Most all of us in here, we don't usually, we do sometimes, we don't usually just say defiantly, I want to disobey. We usually get led, led a little bit, kind of tricked a little bit, tricked into, tricked into thinking this isn't that big a deal or I can get away with it or did God really say this? And so we see that a lot of times our disobedience starts with deception. So I big takeaway for us here would be pay attention. We need to be on guard. It says it all through scripture. Be on guard. Stand guard. Be aware. Uh, behold. There are all these different phrases for pay attention. And we tell our kids that too, right? They want to go run around the rack. Pay attention. What do I say? What in a parking lot? Head up in a parking lot. Pay attention. Head up in a parking lot. Head up. I'm walking around this. The same is true spiritually. Hold up in life. You got to be paying attention because if you don't, the evil one is going to trick us. We'll trick ourselves or we'll be tricked by the ways of the world. So who wants to read? Got anybody in a reading mood? Georgie. Okay. You want to keep going? Okay, we can see on display over and over the deception that the serpent is using. So I just want to kind of highlight those. We went over these last week, talked a lot about them. But I just want to highlight them. If you weren't here, just need a refresher. First of all, the serpent planted a seed of doubt, didn't he? Did God really say that? And a lot of times that's what 
Satan wants us to do is doubt God, doubt God's goodness, doubt that God cares, doubt that God sees me, doubt that God is good, doubt he wants us to, he wants to plant a seed of doubt. When that happens, you need to have an alarm bell like going, aha, well, serpent trick here. I'm starting to have that doubt because it'll come into your head and you might entertain it and you might kind of pour me or do this or do that and start doubting God. But that's your aha as soon as you start having that. Beware, evil one's trying to take you down a road you don't want to go. Next, he gave a direct lie. You surely will not die. God has directly said, don't eat of that or you will die. And he just directly lies to him, says, you won't die. For us, this looks a lot of times like, you're not going to, you won't, you won't pay for that. You can get away with it. This one time's not going to hurt, right? You surely won't die. Well, Satan's using the same tricks on us today. And then he gave a half-truth. He, he sprinkled a little bit of truth in. And even when Satan tried to tempt Jesus Christ, I think it's Luke chapter 4, he twisted scripture. He took scriptures and twisted them when he was tempting Christ. And so that's one of Satan's big tricks is he likes to add just enough truth to make it look good. And I sent a thing out this week to the sermon enrichment team. If you're not part of that sermon thing and you want little plugs on the sermon, Make sure and uh, to help you remember the sermon, review the sermon, um, make sure we get your phone number and we'll, we'll send out those twice a week. But it, I gave the example of it's kind of like giving you a cup of Roundup to drink and then sprinkling, putting two sugar cubes in it. Like, yeah, it might have a little sweet taste. It's going to kill you. It's a, you can add your little bit of truth in, but if you're, if you're, Trying to link it up with poison, deceit, lies, it will bite you in the end, even though it may taste a little sweet going down. And then we saw that he put uh, coveting in place of contentment. You can be like God. It's good. What you have now, Eve, is good, but not good enough. We could do something and make it even better. And for a lot of us, that's where our sin starts. We're not content in... A relationship. We're not content in a marriage. We're not content with our daily life. We're not content. It starts with discontentment and wanting something more. I got. I got to have something better. Things could be better. And a lot of our sin would not even tempt us, or a lot of temptations would not tempt us if we were living satisfied, content lives. And then he appealed to a desire for pleasure, possession, or power. And that is taken from 1 John 2.16. I kind of boiled it down to a little easier way to remember it. But it's a desire to have pleasure, stuff, or power. And we can just uh, think about the different ways we get tempted. And we'll probably fall into one of those three categories. Does that all seem familiar? We good on that? Then we get tricked by these every now and then? Yeah, yeah, I guarantee you do. All right, and I just want to remind you, too, it says uh, here kind of on that idea of being tempted by our own desires, Satan using our own desires. It says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Just a reminder that a lot of times this starts with the stuff going on inside of us, these little wants, this little thing I want. And we got to pay attention to those. What am I after? 
Is this a godly desire? And we talked about what makes something a godly desire and ungodly desire is it would be according to his word. I gave the example of sexual sin. God gave us a sexual desire. That is something God gave us. But he says, I want it to stay within these boundaries. I want it to be within a marriage relationship. And so when we get tempted to take it outside of whatever boundaries God set up, and that's what Satan does. He, he says, okay, not just this, but I want you to hit the stuff that's off limits too. So let's just say, instead of sexual desire, let's say it's for rest. That's a godly desire, right? But that can lead to taken outside of that is laziness. So we can see God, where we start going outside of God's bounds for our desires, and we take, take it beyond the God-given desire and trying to meet that need our own way. You with me? Okay. There's a little more of a review than I thought. So what are some concrete examples of division, difficulty, or death that result from sin? So we're going to move really quickly through this, but just think about there's a sin. You, not you, one of your friends commits a sin. A guy you know. What are some examples of ways that sin brings division or that sin brings difficulty or that sin brings death? Okay. Yep. Any others? Got one big center up here, don't worry. <laughs> big expert. Go ahead. Yep, hundred percent. Yep. Yep. Anybody else? One more? Yeah. Okay, so we could just we could spend a lot of time on that. We won't. How does God deal with sin? And why do we sometimes have a problem with his way of dealing with sin? How does God deal with sin? Direct. Does he sweep it under the rug? Does he ignore it? Does he kind of like as some some parents here think they see their kid doing something their own? Like, I don't have the energy for this. Like, okay, whatever. I'm just gonna ignore this. No? No. He deals with it, doesn't he? He gives consequences for it. He addresses it. He never exposes it. Yeah. Yeah, God does not ignore sin. Why are we sometimes why are we sometimes bugged by that? With God's way of dealing with sin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We want to be able to stay in control of it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And you know what? He's sovereign. He's in control. <laughs> You're like, why is he being so controlling? Because he's the one who's in control. He's the only one that has a right to be controlling like that. What are some common responses we have when someone sins against us? Anger. Oh. Anger, hate. Make them pay. Revenge. Yeah, I know. I know you don't, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. What's that? 
There you <laughs> yeah, but usually we want that sin dealt with, right? We don't want that sin ignored or just brushed over. So we do have, God has made us in his image to where we have a sense of justice in us. Uh, we have a sense of wanting to see sin dealt with, not ignored. So disobedience brings division. So we talked about these things. We're going to talk a little bit more uh, in depth. And again, I'm going to move quick, a little more quick. But we're going to talk about division, difficulty, and death that comes because of sin. Okay? Brings division. Who wants to read these verses? Diana. Okay, you can keep going, please. All right, so here are some of the effects of sin. We see it brings division. And so what did they do? They ran from God. They went and fled. They went and hid. They tried to cover up their sin or cover up their uh, nakedness. Their, they were all of a sudden, their innocence was gone. They were so innocent before, innocent of sin, and all of a sudden that was gone, and they were trying to take care of it themselves. They tried to cover up. And then notice they also started blaming others instead of confessing. We said, what is it that you've done? He they could have just simply said, we disobeyed you. You told us not to do something, and we disobeyed you. But it's like, well, the woman did this. Well, the, it, all of a sudden, it's this blame shifting, which is a common tactic it, that we have. And a lot of times, we will even, rather than just confess our sin, we will gripe about why it was so precious and why we sinned. We'll give an explanation. And Jesus is the one who justifies us, but we often want to justify ourselves. We're to go to Jesus for justification, not self-justification. Well, you kept pushing me and pushing me and pushing me. What was I finally supposed to do? Okay. I'm justifying my sin rather than say, I blew up. I sinned. I lost my temper. Whatever it is, we are typically, and God says, confess your sins. Admit what you did. And this is one of the best ways for us to be restored in a relationship or fellowship with God. And what we very often do is just the opposite. We want to run away from God. We want to hide. And one of the things, um, one of the things I want to make this point here is what did God do? They ran away from God. God was seeking them out. Where are you? Where are you? And why do you think he asked him, where are you? Did he know? God knows everything. I think I put this in the Wednesday question. God knows everything. He knew where he was. I think he wanted them to know that he was pursuing them, that he was concerned about them, that he cared, that he still loved them. 
that he wanted to have the relationship restored with them. He gave them an opportunity to confess. And kind of a bottom line is sin wants us, makes us want to run from God. The best thing we can do when we become aware of our sin is run to God. If you don't walk away with anything else other than this today, it will. if you are one of those people who is slow to confess, feels like you need to do penance, feels like you need to go spend some time in your room, you need to punish yourself, all of those things. Let God, God, if God wants your sin to be punished, he'll punish you. You don't need to add punishment onto yourself. If God wants to give you consequences, he's in charge. Let him give you consequences. You don't need to, yeah, yeah you're going to get him anyways. Don't, you don't need to beat yourself up. And I'm not saying you excuse sin. I'm saying don't run away from God and try and hide sin. When you realize you've sinned, don't make excuses for it. Don't blame others. Don't run away from God. Don't stay and be like, well, I can't really read my Bible now. The thing you should do, and I'm saying this to myself too, we need to run to God when we realize we've sinned. You can see that's the opposite of what those guys did, isn't it? And you look at that and you're like, why didn't they just say, God, I'm so sorry. We messed up bad. We need you. We want it be restored to you again. And that should be our heart when we sin is to realize, God, I messed up. I sinned. I disobeyed you. And then even in uh, Psalm, I think it's 51, uh, David, is he, he's talking about his own sin. And he says, against you only have I sinned. And he did some stuff that involved other people. He slept with the woman he shouldn't have been sleeping with. He had a, uh, her husband killed. He said, against you only I sinned. And now I believe he realized he did sin against those people too. But what I think he's saying is the biggest mess up in all of this was disobeying you, God. That's where the big problem comes in. Diana. Yeah. Yeah. And if you know, I mean, not if you know, you guys know, you're all, even the young kids in here are probably old enough to know. As soon as you sin, things get weird in your own head, your own joy. You start doubting yourself. You start wondering about this. You start thinking up excuses. You start thinking up who you can blame or why you did it. Like things just spiral. You start wondering about this and but we just need to run to God and realize, yeah, I made a mess out of this. Thank you for still loving me, God. Thank you for having grace despite my disobedience. So we see that it brought division, didn't it? It brought division, not just between them and God, they ran, but between the man and the wife started blaming each other. I mean, you can see it right there. It will bring division. If you're sinning, it's going to bring division somehow, some way. 
And then, yeah, sin or disobedience, disobedience is just a longer way of saying sin, brings difficulty, doesn't it? So one we're going to see here, it, it brings a curse on creation. Um, and uh, it, this is why we have the problems we have today. I believe this is why there's cancer in the world. I believe that's why there's hatred in the world. I believe this is why there's war in the world. I believe this is why there's pain and suffering. It's because all of a sudden creation is cursed. Um, you know, evolution teaches that things are getting better and better and better. But God's word teaches that things are continuing to go downhill to drive, drive us closer and closer to God, that he will one day turn it all around. And, and God is righteous and holy. He says that sin must be punished, it's, which is what we want. We want sin punished. We just usually don't want sin. sin. But we want every other sin really dealt with severely. But it's not mine. So just realize in it. We're going to see here, he's going to hands down some consequences that makes things really difficult. This is where we're tricked. God is not mocked. Whatever sows, that he will also reap. If you're out planting watermelon seeds, you're going to get watermelons. You're not going to get lemon trees. If you're planting lemon seeds, you're going to get lemon trees. If you're planting sin in whatever form, you're going to get the consequences of that sin. Don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. And I really, it's a nice little verse we read. But the problem is, we get deceived. We think we can somehow fly under the radar on it all. Don't be deceived. That is a mock for whatever one sows, he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. And I think that means abundant life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. Don't be deceived. There are going to be consequences for sin. We see it right off the bat here. 
Who wants to read this one? Here's this. We're going to read the, what the serpent's consequences are. Levi. All right. So these curses uh, we're going to see are against the serpent and the ground. The curse he does not says he says more cursed are you. He curses Satan and he curses the ground. He does not curse the man and the woman. He leaves it open for there to be a blessing. They have consequences, but they are not cursed to destruction. He will provide a way for them to have life. And so it's important for us to under to see that God leaves the door open for blessing. Blessing is not utterly lost on them. And the idea here, we could get in, there's so many theories about there that was uh, the serpent originally in a man form. And that's why I kind of tricked him, not in a man form, but in some kind of form that would be talking. And then all of a sudden was put, some people say he was a creature that had four legs and then God took his legs away. And that's why he then was there. I have no idea. I have no idea about any of that. I just know he doomed him to destruction. We see it here. He says, I will put enemy between you and her seed and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This means crush his head. So Satan's head is going to get crushed. That's the part I feel like we can latch on to that. And that's pretty clear. I don't know if he had arms or legs before. I don't know. It's interesting to think about, but it doesn't, I don't think it really matters to us. So what he's saying is the seed of the serpent or humanity, uh, because now the sin has become part of mankind now through her seed, sin is going to continue and be perpetuated into mankind is now going to have that curse on them. So there's a, that's kind of a bruise in one sense on the hill and between the serpent human beings in between sinful mankind and Christ. And the bottom line is that Christ will eventually destroy the serpent. We're still waiting for that to happen. That hasn't happened. Uh, and the serpent is going to wound mankind and he wounds Christ by him having to experience death. But ultimately, we see that the woman, through the seed of the woman, and that's why I believe she's a vir uh, born of a virgin, Christ was born of a virgin, is through the seed of the woman, the Savior is given that will crush the head. Does this make sense? So this Satan is cursed and given consequences here. And so I want to just make this really clear. Sometimes we picture God and Satan in this kind of like tug of war, like, oh, God's winning. No, Satan's winning. Oh, God's winning. No, Satan's winning. Oh, God. Ooh, which one's stronger today? That's hogwash. The bigger, pic better picture. Give me one second. The bigger picture is God is completely in charge. He has Satan on a leash. Satan is going to the pound where he will be destroyed one day. And God will, is right now giving him a little leeway for God's glory. It's 
Satan is 100% under the control of God. There is no point, no part, where there's this kind of tug of war between God and Satan and who's really winning. God is 100% winning. He has doomed the serpent to complete destruction. It's important for us to remember that when we live in the everyday life and it can start looking like evil is just running the show and the devil is winning. He's not winning. He knows he knows his days are numbered. Yeah, his, he knows his days are numbered. <laughs> I had a grown-up ask me that question this morning. I've had a few grown-ups ask me that question. Why doesn't he just banish Satan from existence? I don't 100% know, but based on what I understand from scripture, and it even goes back to something Rob and I were talking about a few weeks ago, and here we talked about, I believe the reason that God has allowed Satan to be on that leash is so that it, it allows us to have a choice. Because if there was only good and there was no choice, and people are like, I don't even want a choice. That's because you have a choice right now. You say you don't want a choice. If you didn't have a choice, you would probably want a choice. But I believe Satan is allowed to be active so that we can have a relationship with God based on choice and choosing him. And I believe we talk about one day he's going to be bound for a thousand years and then God allows him to be released and says, Thousands and thousands will be deceived again by him. And you think once he had him bound up for a thousand years, why didn't he just kill him? I think it's the same reason because God always wants to provide man with an opportunity. Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to walk in the ways of the evil one? You have to make a choice. So I think that's why he does that. Good question. Yeah. Trust, choosing to trust God. That's what Adam and Eve didn't do. They didn't trust God. They listened to the serpent. You'll have to ask me after. We're going to keep going. But I want to hear it. I'm sure it's a good question. So now he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. So that now here's the woman's consequences. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and your pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. D. So uh, I'll get to that part in a minute. But basically there's... Two main elements here. One, pain in childbirth. Uh, increased pain, anxiety, fear, pain involved with something that should be just, uh, you would think is filled with so much joy, but now it has, it's tainted a little bit. Sin always taints things. A beautiful thing can be tainted by sin. Um, so that's one of them. And then your desire will be for your husband. It's been interpreted in all kinds of different ways, and I'm not going to get into them, but it goes uh, from these ideas of some kind of uh, it being like a sexual thing to a power struggle to, I believe, probably the best interpretation to me is that it messed up the whole relationship where now the wife doesn't just want to let her husband lead. She wants to lead. And a lot of people have a hard time with that word submission. And so I'll just say, doesn't want to let her husband lead her. And I think it also was the fact that now the husband is not going to be the leader. So essentially, now we're going to have our struggle in marriage. I think that's what he's trying to say is, okay, now there's going to be a power struggle in marriage instead of it being 
the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and so when he says your desire will be for your husband, a lot of people interpret that as your desire will be to rule over your husband. I don't know if that is what it is, but I think that what he's saying is there's going to be a power struggle between you and your husband. There's obviously something here that hinders the husband-wife relationship. That you can't argue. I mean, that's clear as can be from the passage. That's part of the curse for the woman. And so if you're a woman and you're thinking, my marriage just isn't what I want it to be, then thank you. Because don't get on your husband about it. It's not at all his fault. Just kidding, kidding, kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's not his fault. <laughs> that was me walking out the back door. Not. Um, just kidding. Yeah, yeah, no. He, yeah, where are you going? Adam, Adam totally flaked on his leadership in the whole thing to, to start out with. Um, but I believe that that's when it says your desire will be for your husband. It just means that there's going to be trouble in that marriage relationship. And I believe it means there's going to be a power struggle now between a husband and a wife, or the husband's not going to lead the way he should, and the wife's not going to want to let him lead the way that he should. All right. Then Adam, to Adam, he said, so now here's Adam's consequences. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife. So if you want to biblically say, why you don't need to listen to your wife? Here it is. Because you heeded the voice of your wife. Guys, here's your back door on everything. I'm just kidding. I'll get to it in a minute. And have you eaten from the tree in which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it? Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So in other words, I think what he's saying is, you listen to your wife when you should have been listening to me. And you should have been telling your wife because he they were together. He should have been running interference 100% being the man that he was supposed to be and saying, no, don't. Stop. Being the protector that a husband, that a wife desires in a husband, he should have been running interference there and doing whatever it would take to sidetrack that whole thing or say, remember what God said. So because he heeded the voice of his wife, and again, I, was, I make light of that, but he was listening to his wife and not obeying God. And that's what a godly relationship should look like, is a man obeys God, and then he will meet all the needs of his wife. If he is in a walk with God and obedience to God, he will know what to do for his wife that will bless that marriage relationship instead of doing something to throw uh, to, to throw a stick in the spokes of the relationship. And ultimately, I believe, and, and through Scripture, we see over and over, even in the New Testament, where Eve is not really blamed for any of this. It's Typically, it says through one man, sin entered the world. And I believe the buck stopped with Adam, and Adam messed, Adam's the one who messed it up. Um. Not that she did everything perfect, but man should have been stepping in in a way that he didn't step in. And so the curse for the man we're going to see is that now it's going to take a lot of toil for him. Work before God had designed man to work, but it was a joy. He said it would be like working at the zoo and botanical garden. You're naming animals. Everything's the trees are producing all kind of fruit. Everything's a blessing. 
but all of a sudden things got difficult. Thorns and thistles that bring forth, you shall eat the herb of the field, the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, dust you are, and to dust you'll return. So now, guys, now you got work is going to be miserable and difficult. And you can be like, well, not me, I am enjoying my job. Well, praise God, that is awesome. But it's less enjoyable than it would have been before the fall. And then the other part is there's going to be physical death. So God curses the ground rather than Adam. Adam's work is now going to be difficult. Um, I want to just make this point that as he placed death in the picture, we see again that Jesus Christ was willing to take that punishment. Jesus Christ is the only one who never deserved to die, but yet Jesus Christ willingly takes death. I think I think it, I don't think it means for his good. I think it's because of what Adam did. God cursed the ground. Yeah, I think it. Another way of saying that is because of what you did. I don't think it means for your benefit. I don't think he means for your benefit. The passage. Yeah, no, I think it's just saying because of what you did, the ground is cursed. Disobedience causes death. I'll wrap up here pretty quick, but I just want to explain a concept. All through scripture, we see that the path to death starts out easy. And then it gets a little difficult, and then it leads to death. Think about any of the sin you get involved with. It usually seems pretty darn fun at the beginning. Easy to get involved with. Very simple. Then all of a sudden, things start getting a little painful. Little price tag here. Little price tag there, little difficulty here, little division in the marriage, a little this. And then it can ultimately lead to death. Maybe it's a death of a marriage. Maybe it's a physical death. Maybe it's a death of a finances because you've wasted your money on the ways you. But it started out really easy, didn't it? But the opposite is true on the path to life. It usually starts with self-denial. And so it's death to our own desire. Like if she would have just, he would have just said like, I'm not going to indulge myself in this thing that looks so good and easy and nice. That might've been difficult for her to say that, but if she would have just started with that, it would have made life easier in the long run. And if anybody here is coming out of an addiction or has changed some life habits or anything, they know it starts with a lot of self-denial and saying no in that time when you want to say yes. And it can be difficult for a period of time. But then life starts getting better. It's because God is not mocked. What a man sows, this he will also reap. And so a verse that says this, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. Does that sound easy or hard? That's a sign of death. And follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will save it. Whoever loses his life, whoever denies himself, will end up being blessed. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. So really, 
Adam's name was woman before, and now all of a sudden it's Eve. And I believe what he's saying, why he named her that, is he was believing in God's promise that she would continue. And he was saying, I do trust that God is going to carry out his word. And so you think about God's grace is seen even here that he said, woman, she had consequences. You will have these consequences, but I'm going to bring a savior to the world through you. I'm going to make you mother of all the living. Again, we keep seeing we mess it up and God just continues to be gracious, continues to be kind and continues. And he gave them skins. What did they cover themselves up before? Leaves. He says, that's not good enough. You're going to be working out in the briar patch, man. You need some fig leaves. You need some animal skins. And in that we see sacrifice was needed to take care of sin adequately. It's not what we can do to cover up our own sin, to take care of our own problems. We can't do it. We need to rely on the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. They were kicked out of the garden because of this. They were not allowed to eat of the tree of life. They were going to now experience physical death. So they were deceived, right? Then they disobeyed. Did they experience division with God and with each other? Did life get difficult? Did death come in? Do we deal with those same things today? It all started back there. God's not... A lot of times people are like, can God be so cruel? Just look at God's hand, God's benevolence, God's kindness, God's grace over and over and over, even despite he's chasing them around in the garden and they're trying to hide. He's taking care of things. He continues to offer us his grace. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and go out and find spiritual security. Now, here's what the thief wants to steal kill and destroy did satan try and do that 100 percent. but here's the good news jesus christ says i have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly we're going ned's going to lead us in communion but as we move into that just want you guys to realize and remember sin brings death and because of sin God sent his son to die to take care of our sin problem because he's gracious and he cares about us. God continues to pursue us and offer us grace despite our disobedience.